0: Father in heaven, may the words of our mouth, my mouth, the meditation of our hearts, be acceptable in your sight, for you are our strength and our redeemer. Amen. A Lutheran pastor by the name of Nie uh, was there at the rise in Germany of the Third Reich. He admittedly was a supporter early on of this movement by Hitler, but then at the end he became knowledgeable that this was a murderous nation-state, that he had he had done a terrible thing in his support. At that point, he wrote this. He said, First, they came for the socialists, and I did not speak out, because I was not a socialist. Then they came for the trade unionists, and I did not speak out, because I was not a trade unionist. Then they came for the Jews, and I did not speak out, because I was not a Jew. Then they came for me, and there was no one left to speak for me. When the church loses her voice, what happens? Evil is allowed to run rampant. When a church fails to speak for the voiceless ones, this is what happens. What happens when the church turns a blind eye to sin or a deaf ear to sin and cozies up with sin? Well, that's what we're going to look at today. Revelation chapter 2 verses 12 to 17 We're in our fourth installment of Seven Letters to Seven Churches, and today we're going to look at a church called Pergamum. Pergamum. If you've got your Bibles, it'd be really helpful to walk through the rich symbolism here, so turn in there to chapter two. A few things about Pergamum. We're talking about a city that's on the west side of modern-day Turkey. It's right near the Aegean Sea. It would have been a very powerful, extremely rich Greek city. Still today, they're known for three big things. First of all, the Acropolis. If you've been to Rome, maybe you've seen the Acropolis there. We've got a a stair-step city built on a hill. We've got an Acropolis with uh, the worship uh, the, uh, worship of Athena and Zeus and Dionysius and also the imperial cult. So, so get the picture here. You've got all these little places of worship as you ascend the Acropolis. Second thing you'll notice if you were there is it was a center for healing and a center for medicine. The rod of Asclepius, the rod of Asclepius, was the symbol of that town and is still the modern day symbol for medicine yet today. So, it was a healing center. And last of all, it was a library. They had over 200,000 volumes. It was second in the ancient world only to Alexandria. And so get that. Big city, cultural center, medical center, littered with the worship of pagan gods and goddesses, including the emperor. There was extreme pressure on these Christians to capitulate, to compromise, deny Caesar or you die, they would have thought. But we will not bow down. You see, in that time, I don't know if you, you've been told, but um, there were actually processions around the streets where they would have pompa parades, and the image of Caesar would be lifted up as a god, and people in the streets would bow down to Caesar and pay homage to his image. The Christians said, we will not do that. Jesus is Lord. Caesar is not. And so they died for not worshiping Caesar. And they brought that same parade into the church, and that's called our procession on Sunday. But instead of lifting high the image of Caesar, we lift high the cross of Christ. And you'll see Anglicans still today bowing in homage to the symbol of our salvation. We will worship Jesus as Lord, but Caesar is not. Well, what about Pergamum? Would they compromise? Well, let's look at that. Verse 12, And to the angel of the church in Pergamum write, The words of him who has the sharp two-edged sword. This, of course, is Jesus, right? He's not only the word of God incarnate in the flesh, but he speaks the word of God to the church of Pergamum. So we need to note that he's the bearer of God's word to his people. In Hebrews 4.12, we're told, for the word of God is what? Living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword. So, this morning we see the, the authoritative two edged sword coming out from Jesus to his church, the Word. In verse 13, it appears that in the midst of a church sa- surrounded by immorality and idolatry and sin, that this church is doing pretty well. Read verse 13. It says, I know where you dwell, where Satan's throne is. So, Jesus is saying, Listen, I know the pressures to compromise. I know that you have idols all around you. I know the pressures for you to, to, uh, to not live faithfully for me. And yet you are. You are. So who is this Satan person? Well, most likely, they're talking about the emperor worship, the imperial worship again. The emperor sits on the throne here But spiritually, Satan sits on the throne there, and they're working together. Just as Jesus says, get behind me, Satan, to Peter. Peter was really there, and yet something spiritual is going on up here. That's why they call it Satan's throne. So here is the deal. If Chicago is the Windy City and Vegas is Sin City, Pergamum was Satan's city. Hard to be a Christian in Satan's city. So in verse 13, they're they're doing pretty good. He said, yet you hold fast my name, Jesus says. And you did not deny my faith, even in the days of Antipas, my faithful witness, who was killed among you where Satan dwells. See, the church at Pergamum, they'd remained doctrinally pure. Their theology was solid. They did not deny the Lord, even to the point of death. Antipas denied the worship of Caesar to the point of probably death. He was martyred. But they weren't a perfect church. Get that. We're not a perfect church. They were not a perfect church. Look at verse 14. But I have a few things against you. You have some there who hold to the teaching of Balaam, who taught Balak to, to put a stumbling block before the sons of Israel so that they might eat food, sacrifice to idols, and practice sexual immorality. So I've got that against you. Some of you have fallen into that. Then verse 15, so also you have some who hold the teaching of the Nicolaitans among you. Boil all that down, just just, without going back into the word study of the Old Testament and what Balaam was doing, just know that both the Nicolaitans and Balaam were out to cause idolatry amongst God's people, uh, false worship amongst God's people, and sexual immorality. So some of you have fallen into that, he's saying in Pergamum. But here's the real criticism. It's not the overt sinners. It's not the sins of commission that he's looking at. It's the sins of omission, which is more grave to Jesus. The problem he has, and the main point why he says, repent, therefore, in verse 16, is some people in the church have failed to speak out against the sin. They have compromised. They have let good and evil cohabit amongst one another. They've become a tolerant church. They have compromised the values of Jesus, and Jesus launches into them and says, y'all repent, repent. How often has the church turned a blind eye to sin? The Lutheran pastor, Niemöller, what would have happened if he would have been faithful to Christ? Yes, he might have died, but we're called not to turn a blind eye to sin. How about today? Might the Lord be encouraging the church not to turn a blind eye to sin? In the last few weeks, there's been legislation in the United States in a couple different pockets presenting to our nation the allowance of the extermination of a child, even right before birth. Or some are pushing for right after birth. You can have a discussion with your doctor. Shall we get rid of the child? Our nation is cozying up to sin. And it's just not some evil out there somewhere. The church is sometimes pushing this pushing this abortion at any cost, at any time. In the 1970s, the Episcopal Church had stood fast that abortion was wrong except for in cases of incest or rape or the endangerment of a mother. Now, some of us may be on one side or the other of that argument, but they took a stand for something they believed in. But the rhetoric has changed. Satan's city is being built on the, on the blood of children, just like in Pergamum idolatry is raising its ugly head and will the church speak out for the innocent see the abortion narrative has changed in november of 2017 in october of 2015 in fort worth and in cleveland ohio episcopal priests gathered to bless the opening of abortion clinics today they're using the language of it is a blessing to have an abortion Tracy Lynn, the Dean of Cleveland's Trinity Episcopal Cathedral, said, Bless this building, Lord. May its walls stand strong against the onslaught of shame thrown at it. And may it be a beacon of hope. A beacon of hope. Who will speak for the voiceless ones? Who will be the champion of the innocents? Who will stand for the little lambs of Christ? If the church loses its voice, who will stand for those innocents? And I'm not talking about abortion clinic picketing or making signs or anything like that. I don't think that works. What I am talking about is the church becoming proactive and putting forth a positive message for unwed mothers that if you can't bring your child to term, we're going to come alongside you financially and, and give you another option so that you can have a godly option. Or the church, when she proclaims that adoption's a beautiful thing, uh, let me walk with you and let's put the child up for adoption. I'm a child of adoption. I don't know if you know, but um, I was adopted as an infant. And I continuously think back on my mom and, and my birth mother. And what about if she didn't have the courage or that option? And what about if the church had told her it's a blessing to get rid of Trip Jeffords? At that, at that time, I was baby boy Glenn. But, but um, you see, see what I'm saying? The church has to have a voice in this. But here's the cautionary tale. The church's call is neither to tolerate sin, which is what had happened in Pergamum, nor is it to condemn the sinners. Nor is it to condemn the sinners. John 3.17 says that, For God did not send his Son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved. So he's calling here two groups to repentance and salvation. One is a group that had compromised the truth of Christ. Another group had fallen into idolatry and sexual morality verse 16 he says therefore repent and if not I will come to you soon and war against them with the sword of my mouth the sword of judgment against your sin and the sword of judgment against your um, both commission and omission your failure to address sin so this is the good news though he did not come to condemn us but to save us so whatever you've come to the church with this morning Whatever brokenness you have, he came not to condemn you, but to save you. Maybe you have in your life some pain and guilt of something you've done, a failed marriage, a broken relationship. Maybe somewhere back in your past, you were the person that aborted a child. He came not to condemn you, but to save you. You need to hear that. And no matter what your guilt or shame is this morning, you can bring it to the cross of Christ, and he promises to crucify it to release you from it forever. As far as the east is from the west, he promises to take it away. And there are three promises that are in our text, and I'll close with these right now. For those who will return, repent, and come back to the Lord, verse 17, he who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who conquers, I'll give some hidden manna. I'll give him a white stone, with a new name written on the stone that no one knows except the one who receives it. Three gifts of blessing coming from the Spirit through the Son. First of all, I'll give you some hidden manna. What's that about? Well, remember in John chapter 6, the, the Israelites say, I want a, a, a sign from heaven that you're the Messiah. Send us some manna like, like Moses did in the Old Testament. Jesus said, guys, he, y'all ate that manna. Your ancestors did and they all died. He said, I'm the best manna. He said, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall never again hunger. Whoever believes in me shall never again thirst. Jesus is the hidden manna. He's the one that gets us through these difficult situations and difficult challenges in our lives. And he's promising Pergamum, I will come to you and I'll be your manna. I'll be your sustaining grace through this world filled with devils, this satanic culture. I'll get you through it. Promise number two, I will give them a white stone. Now that's got several meanings, but here are the ones that I want you to listen to. If a jury trial was being had in that time, and you were being voted on as being innocent, they would put a white stone would be the vote in your favor. If it was a black stone, then that meant you were guilty. And so the white stone signifies that in Christ, we are found to be innocent before God. The Bible says that though your skin sins be like scarlet, they shall be made white as snow. That's what Jesus promises. You can take that old black stone of guilt and exchange it for a white stone of innocence. It doesn't matter what your past looks like. The white stone is yours if you'll come to Christ. And the other interpretation is that in all those uh, temples and all those idol, all that idol worship, you were given a white stone they would have both your name written on it and the symbol of the god or goddess, the deity you worshipped. And you would show that at the door to be a loud entrance into the great celebrations and festivals. Well, guess what? We're not pagan. But on that white stone of innocence, we've got our name written indelibly for Christ. And on the other side is the image of our Savior. And at the end-time banquet in, described in Revelation 19, the wedding feast of the Lamb we can show that at the door and he'll allow us to enter in and we'll be able to celebrate at the wedding feast of the Lamb. Your name indelibly marked in your salvation. And the last thing is the promise of a new name. I'll give you a white stone with a new name written on it. When we are found in Christ, we're promised in 2 Corinthians five seventeen that a new creation is born. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. Don't you just love that? Our God is constantly changing people's names so that they can leave behind that old identity and become a new creature. Saul becomes Paul and leaves behind that murderous life and becomes a new creature, begins to be a preacher for Christ. And it's a name that no one knows. That signifies the intimacy that Christ has with us. Only you and Jesus, y'all know the name, y'all know the name. It's like he said, I am the great shepherd of the sheep, and I know my sheep by name, and I call them by name. So here's the deal. We all need to repent, either with sins of not addressing sin in our lives, sins of compromise, sins of, of, uh, of uh, omission, or sins of commission. Maybe we've been involved in something, some deep, dark past that we need to let go But we need to repent this morning and return to our first love. And the promise is he will give you manna to endure. He will give you the stone of innocence to wipe you clean. He will give you a new name and a new start and a new beginning in him. And that intimate relationship will be yours with the one who loved you first and gave his life for you. In Jesus' name, amen.